This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you food you're craving right now, right to your door. Ordering is very easy. It's so simple, even I can do it, and that's saying something. All you need to do is download and then open the DoorDash app. Choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. I very much appreciate that. I very much appreciate all that DoorDash does because I do have a pregnant wife. The cravings have not been so severe, at least not yet, but there is some solace in that like you hear those stories about the the partner having to rush out in the middle of the night to get chocolate ice cream and pickles or something like that ideally with doordash it would be a full meal that i can have delivered so when she's feeling like she needs mexican food at 1 a.m or i don't know thai food at 9 a.m hopefully there will be options but thus far there have been and for that i am eternally grateful with over 300,000 partners in the united states puerto rico canada and australia you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants if you want to go that route and right now our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery freeze on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code TSS. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code TSS. One more time, don't forget that's code TSS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Thank you very much to DoorDash for sponsoring this episode and bring food to my door. Uh, and now on with the show. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am excited to talk Spurs. I'm excited to talk all or nothing. With me to talk both of those things and several others is a man who prioritizes Charlotte Golf and then the Total Soccer Show. It's Mr. Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. There are many things I'd like to say to you, but I don't speak Spanish. (laughs) What we are alluding to with the not speaking Spanish is that Gareth Bale has returned to Tottenham or is in the process, I think, at time of recording, but soon will be a Tottenham player once again. We're obviously Mm. going to be talking about All or Nothing, the Spurs documentary, the final three episodes. But this is kind of the big news of the day, so I feel like we should start there. Ryan, what do you make of this one? I wasn't necessarily surprised by it. I was very excited about it, and I'm wondering if you were feeling the same. Well, I've seen these narratives that this is finally Mourinho bending uh, Daniel Levy to his will, i.e. bringing in expensive players, which is not something traditionally that Daniel Levy has done. When he has broken club records, it has gone on players who haven't been so hot, as we've seen in the documentary we're about to talk about. Mm. Um, But I, for one can't remember being this excited as a neutral about an incoming Premier League transfer. I'm really excited to see Gareth Bale back. I'm excited to see him play again on the reg. Hopefully Mm. he does. Uh, I'm excited to get the second uh, series of All or Nothing where Bale lays one on Hoyman's son and gets that left-sided position uh, nailed down in the team. Uh, I'm excited for that as well. This is going to sound like a joke but it's sort of a serious that like when you're coming from Real Madrid and there's the video of him talking about being booed and how he never really understood it and never really got why everybody would boo him I guess playing behind closed doors then is almost an upgrade because I'll take silence over being aggressively booed every single time so maybe he's already on like a stronger footing oh you've never tried being aggressively booed Taylor I recommend it it's wonderful (laughs) you're right and I don't think I want to go that route I'll I'll hold off Uh, especially when it's unfair which I would argue it has been for Gareth Bale but this does also feel like a 
not necessarily Jose Mourinho to me like bending Daniel Levy or anything like that because I think Daniel Levy himself enjoys these big transfers. I think it's one thing I would have liked to see is him doing a little bit of hard hard nosed negotiating and getting exactly what he wanted yeah. uh, with Sergio Reguilon. I never know how to properly pronounce that one, but that one feels a bit more like he sort of did what Man United, two Man United, what Man United have done to him on a couple occasions, which is snake in at the last minute, concede to a point that they were hesitant on, and make the deal happen. I think we saw, like, sort of not really saw, but I think this was a good example of him doing what he does and working his magic such as it is to make some moves happen. And I think credit to him, because this makes their squad better, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm actually quite confused by the... I'm saying Reguillon. Okay, I think that's I like how I'm going to go with it. Let's go with that. Um, I'm confused by that transfer because I don't know why Madrid want to let him go. Are you any wiser on that? Because my understanding was like he's been pretty highly rated. When I've watched him last season, I thought he was great mm-hmm. and was the natural Marcelo successor. And yet here we are. Which is maybe why they're insisting on that buyback clause in hopes that if things do go a certain way, they can get him back guaranteed. Mm. I don't know if that ended up being part of the deal, but I'm with you. It seemed like he would be there to replace Marcelo. Maybe Zinedine Zidane has, has, has other ideas. Maybe it was just a player that didn't quite fit. Maybe they should have swapped in Dombele, and they could have gone that route. And it could have been two players that maybe don't quite fit moving in opposite directions, and it all would have worked <laughs> out fine. Well, I'm in a draft fantasy Premier League, uh, league, and all I can say is that uh, I think a few teams are going to be trying to tank this weekend to try and get either Bale or Reguillon in their sides <laughs> in the waivers. Um, what do you, you... You mentioned it earlier about Gareth Bale. Like, is it going to be him versus Son? That seems unlikely. How do you think he fits in with Spurs? Is he a Harry Kane replacement? Do you think he'll play him on the opposite wing? Is it going to be a formation change? If you were betting, where do you think he fits into this team? I don't really know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean... I cheekily said he would kind of take on that left-sided position. He could play in a two with Harry Kane, couldn't he? He could mm-hmm. even relieve Harry Kane, who has to play 500 million matches a season. Yeah, uh, And that would really help him out, having a little bit of rotation up there as well. So I think there's lots of things he could do. Hey, he could take on Reguillon at left-back. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> go they've, they've tried it before. Uh, it does feel like we, we're going to get the footage, if they do another season with Spurs, of... Gareth Bale before Gareth Bale after coming back. That that's some like kind of layup footage, I'm gonna guess. But it also does make sense. Turning to the documentary a little bit, I did have in my notes that there is no way Harry Kane finishes this season fully fit. Mm. This does seem like a move with an eye towards those 5,000 games they're going to be playing in a very condensed timeline and the number of games Harry Kane has already had to play. I do think he probably will spell Harry Kane quite a bit this season in certain competitions because otherwise you're sort of relying on a player whose hamstring went last year because of how much he played. That doesn't seem like a thing that will change this time around. So I think having some other options there in the attack will only be a benefit if you're a Spurs fan. And as I said in the weekend review on Monday, Harry Kane ran the fastest I've ever seen him run when he was trying to do that diagonal uh, run to get the ball from uh, Son in that Everton game. So I'm not sure he's got much else left in in this season after that run. That's so it. We'll see if, uh, if Bale has come has been brought in for that specific purpose. Uh, time will tell on that front. I think, by the way, Mourinho has been trolling us a little bit this week because he's now said, I'm worried I've got too many players in my squad. And we all know about Spurs' schedule at the moment, how they've got you know two midweek... Two lots of two midweek games mm-hmm. potentially with all this Europa League and uh, and League Cup coming in. Surely having more players in your squad is a good thing at this point. 
One would think. One would think. I mean, I do think what the documentary series has reminded me is that Jose Mourinho is very smart in how he answers questions. He's very smart in how he conducts himself with the media. I think he's very like selective in what he says and how he says it in order mm-hmm. to get a reaction or not get a reaction, depending on what he wants. So I do think some of what he's saying is probably media management and, and maybe yeah. like, you know, just playing with people's heads a little bit. Uh, well, I guess we could talk more about how he interacts with the camera as we get into the final three episodes. Shall we do that now? Or do you want to point out anything else about the Bale Rehuilon transfers? Oh, you went to Rehuilon. I like that. Very oh, nice. Uh, I'm going to go with French. that from now on. Let's go into All, all right. or Nothing, baby. All right. Where should we begin? When last we left, Spurs were not playing very, very well. We start with a shaved head, Jose Mourinho. That mm. is always a troubling thing. I think I first learned that from Carl Anka, but it is maybe indicative that things aren't going well. Yeah, that's always been the tradition when he does shave his head. I think, did he start doing it at Real Madrid? I think yeah. that was when he was getting in trouble there. And whenever he gets onto Darkest Timeline Mourinho, you can see the hair um, uh, deplete. And by the end of this uh, series, it's grown back to its normal... Um, slightly grumpy Mourinho levels. Mm-hmm. So this this is the uh this is the part of this the season where the season started to go wrong as well. So it does kind of line up with the shaved head Mourinho motif, does it not? It certainly does. And I want to say up front, like we, I'll speak for myself, I really enjoyed this series overall, like from start to finish. And I think part of what I enjoyed about it was looking for the moments that like, who they did not want to talk about that or they did try to avoid that. So I don't even think mm. that's necessarily... Me being critical or me not enjoying it, it's more so me just trying to be like, okay, they didn't want to talk about that. That is interesting. So we will talk a little bit about that. But I do want to start off, I say that to say then that this was maybe the first episode. Maybe it's just because you pointed out some moments that I felt like there were some clear edits, some clear moments where they were trying to build a narrative, it, starting in episode seven, but continuing through the final three. Did you feel something similar? Yeah, definitely. There was definitely some um, build, building of certain uh, tenets that were going through. Oh, I, I dropped the word tenet in there. Nice special. Um, <laughs> nothing went backwards, I don't think, in this uh, uh, part of the series. But th- yeah, um, what was I saying earlier? It was basically how like they were trying to build this narrative that this is a, t- a, a side that's getting tougher. And we'll get mm-hmm. into this in the later episodes. But th- the time and time again in the early part of this season, it was Mourinho saying, you know, this team's got a soft belly. Only mm-hmm. Eric Dyer wants to fight people on and off the field. Um, so so and, and, and they did certain things to build up that narrative mm-hmm. as it went on. And did, did you see some narrative building in ep- episode seven? Yeah, it starts It starts with his halftime talk in the first leg of the Leipzig uh, Champions League clash, which uh, they're drawing nil-nil at the half. And mm. he does that whole, like, you can't just stand there and, and uh, grab your balls or whatever it was. Um, and that was when I realized, like, this is the first time that I'm clearly seeing an edit because he says that line. Then they have him repeat that line, and I don't think it syncs up with what he's saying. And then he just sort of walks out of the locker room. Yeah, And I know that we haven't gotten much in the way of tactics, but there's just no way that that's how that talk ended because then you see the players all get very like amped up and they all kind of stand up as though they're responding to what he said. But he was walking away when he made that statement. So I think it was clear that he was walking away. The coaches came in and did a little bit of the adjustments, the tactical like side of things, and then he probably delivered one more remark and then we moved on. But it yeah. felt like they wanted to create this idea that he gave this kind of crazy team talk and it resonated, but also showed his frustration and I think that then leads to that game looking like Spurs respond in the second half and do fight and it is a much more open game and 
though they end up what, losing 1-0 at home, 3-0 on the road, it sort of seems like they're trying to paint it as like, oh, but they fought and we're learning things. And I remember those games not being very good for Spurs at all. Yeah, this was revisionist history at its finest because they they edited the highlights of that game to mm-hmm. look way better yeah, at right? than I remember it being. Certainly, that's the case. I mean, that that was the kind of the narrative they were trying to build, as you say. Uh, they opened with the halftime team talk. They open episode seven with it with with Mourinho, as you say, saying the line twice. This is mm-hmm. no time to touch your place where you put manscaped toning spray. <laughs> um, and to me, I read that as Jose showing off for the camera, like uh, yeah. Oh, check out this line I've got, that kind of thing. And sort of saying it again, like in a, you know, like repeating the punchline of a joke when the room doesn't quite react to it how you'd yep. like, like them to. Uh-huh. That was the sense I got from, from that one. <laughs> and then he taps the mic and says, is this thing on? And that's the yeah. end of the team talk. So, so yeah, th- I'm with you. I'm with you on that. And I'm with you on, there were moments in the final three episodes where I felt like we did get, Again, maybe I'm just more awake to it now, but I did. I think we did get a little bit more performative Mourinho because after this loss, we see him analyzing the game. We see his frustration that Delhi walks away, but the center backs don't tell him what to do, and there's miscommunication, and it leads to the penalty. But what really stood out to me in all of the film sessions I have ever experienced, both playing football and playing soccer, it's re- it's almost intentionally unemotional. It's intentionally very dry, and mm-hmm. it is more like as though you're just sort of like looking at faulty equipment and your coach is just saying like, oh, that didn't happen. This should have happened. Therefore, this happened. You, we don't want that to happen. We've got to get better there. Like it, it's not meant to be emotional because otherwise it's more or less humiliating to just be in front of the entire team told you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't do this. Yeah. And if you watch how his assistant, Joe Sacramento, does it, that is more of what you usually do in my experience, at least. It's a lot more of if that's my teammate, if I'm the teammate, if this mm. is us, we're doing this. It's never specific names. It's never yelling at people it's very unemotional and it did seem like Jose Mourinho was calling people out was being more emotional and I don't know if that's what he normally does or if that is him sort of trying to get the team going and trying to get the team going in front of the cameras but the Um, are you saying you don't know if Jose Mourinho normally (laughs) calls people out is that what you just said (laughs) yeah yeah let me let me let me back that up a little bit I think what I read is that he doesn't necessarily enjoy one-on-one confrontation which is why we don't see him dealing with Ndombele it's why we don't really see him looking like this like like strong alpha male when he's dealing with Danny Rose but I think he doesn't sh- like shy away from calling people out when he doesn't think they've done right. a good enough job. But I think we also see how that can backfire, that when you're watching Deli Ali respond to what Mourinho is saying, I think he likes Jose. I think there's a decent relationship there, so I don't think he takes it necessarily personally. And I think also the fact that Mourinho then blames the center backs of the goalkeeper and other players probably alleviates that somewhat. But it's still calling people out individually for their mistakes, and we only see one snippet of that of that like film session and right. if that's the whole thing if he's doing that the whole time i can understand how there would be a little bit of of morale issue because everybody feeling like oh i did that wrong and i did this wrong and i'm not good enough and i'm getting yelled at and if it's if it's that consistently i can understand then why you don't have good vibes in training and instead why you have a lot of physical challenges in training 
Yeah, for sure. And this this film session came after the Chelsea loss. Am I right in saying that? Because oh yeah, that might be the, the specific incident they were talking about was ha- yes, how yes. Uh, Chelsea were allowed to have three shots on goal in the same movement, and they were sort of appalled that this was allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. It kind of, the vibe I got from that. Do you remember the Simpsons episode where Krusty bets against the Ho- Harlem Globetrotters? Yeah. He's like, they're just, <laughs> he's just spinning the ball on the finger. Just take it. Just take it. I forgot that was about kind that. Of the, that was kind of what the coaches were doing. It. Why are you letting them have three shots? Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crusty betting on the Washington Generals, I believe That's it was. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I love The Simpsons. Uh, I did love this documentary. I, I don't know if I loved Daniel Levy. Let's talk about him for a moment. Uh, referring to Jose as a class act who's coming to a difficult situation. What did you make of that one, Ryan? Uh, that was camera spiel, wasn't it? Essentially, yeah. Uh, that that was uh, the party line. That was how all like VPs of big companies speak. Essentially, uh, that was uh, what I got from that. I didn't read. Too- I-, I don't think you got a real sense of what Daniel Levy is actually like from this documentary whatsoever. I think you got the the party line, Daniel Levy, in almost all cases with a with a those sneaky. Um, Oh, don't let him down, because yeah. I'll find you. That kind of uh, vibe that he had going sometimes, but. Yeah, I mean, what else is he supposed to say at that point? Yeah, well, I, I think I think I, like I'm I'm enjoying spotlighting him here because I read the athletic piece that fills in some of the holes in what we didn't see or what we did see and explains it a bit more. And mm. one of the things it points out is that uh, Daniel, I keep calling him Levy, but let's go with Levy. Daniel Levy is, uh, by all accounts, a little bit more awkward. He's not like for what we think of him as this commanding negotiator who gets exactly what he wants. Evidently, do in one v one, I do at least because I, I know of him as being the the negotiator who's always going to get the best deal, almost to his own detriment because it means deals might not happen. But it makes it hard to him, sort of negotiate uh, with him. Once again, to use a Simpsons reference, as a saying, "I'm sorry, we can't pay you anymore this year." Smithers, money fight. <laughs> That's the vibe I get from him usually. <laughs> I mean, there's there's certainly some of that, uh, <laughs> but like what I I think the, the difference there would be that at least Mr. Burns was leading that line of dialogue, whereas there were moments in this one I think that athletic article compares it to the David Brent Finchy dynamic of at one point Daniel <laughs> Levy is just repeating what Jose is saying. Like, oh, yeah, so good, so good, so tough, so tough, works so hard, so much running, so much – it's just like why yeah. are you – Repeating everything. Like, and I, I think maybe what that shows is how excited he is to have Mourinho there, which I think he is. And I think he is sort of excited about the name coming into Tottenham and what that means, because we are reminded in these final three episodes that when uh, Daniel Levy came into Tottenham, they were not the club they are now. And he has been instrumental in shaping them. But this is still the highest profile manager I think he's probably ever worked around or been around consistently. So to some yeah. extent, I don't really begrudge him that, but I did find it slightly endearing. I did think they cut out the scene where uh, Daniel Levy threw uh, Jose Mourinho's shoe over the building as well. Um, any, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I want to talk about Levy later on because he's quite key in a scene with Ndombele. I think that's episode eight, so we can get to that in a little bit. Or is that episode mm-hmm. nine? It's episode nine. Uh, episode yeah, we'll nine. We'll get that yeah. later. But um, yep. can, we, can we talk about Harry Winks going to the old people's home as well, which also yes, happens we can. before the, uh, the Wolves game and before the Norwich game in this. It's it's quite endearing. I just like Harry Winks. He he comes across really well. It's this moment yes, where 
Um, it's a precursor to him being the captain for the Wolves game, uh, where he gives a team talk. And just as, he, as, just as we're about to hear how he compares to Lloris and Kane at team talks, that alarm goes off that tells them they have to go out onto the field, which is very, uh, yeah. <laughs> very unfortunate. But I love that, that moment in the old people's home. I think it was an old people's home where they went and did their community stuff. Oh, look at these old boots, Sheila. Yeah. Look at these. <laughs> I loved all that. That was great. And as I say, I think Winks came across uh, very genuinely, very well in that section i do too i think the only uh the only downside there was i, I got the impression the filmmakers were desperately wanted him to score on his england debut because <laughs> we, we get the footage of him like having a shot going for a cross looking a little frustrated but i think they really wanted the narrative of like he's come through and he's made this thing happen but that aside i honestly like maybe i'm 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 just like a a, a cheap viewer i don't know but i loved all that stuff i liked Sergio Rey with the kids i liked harry winks i liked young vertonghen at a food bank like because mm. again it's probably pr but it works and it's those guys even if it is pr and i'm sure they're told you have to be here this is your community service day they still go into it you don't have that sort of like yeah i'm here whatever hi good stuff like Sergio Rey hangs out he plays he seems interested in it and a lot of these episodes i think reminded me that these are kids like and and even if they're 22 23 like like they're still you know that's that's fresh out of college kid who still doesn't know much about the world and you can see that and how they're kind of responding to coronavirus or not responding and not really understanding what's happening and you can yeah. see that in a lot of these interactions harry winks especially that it's sort of a kid who's suddenly famous and is trying very very hard to navigate that as successfully as he can and also navigate what his manager is asking of him i think we see him doing a lot of professional fouling the way jose has asked but mm. i think because it's not just what they're doing on the field and what's Harry Winks doing and has he adapted his game, but you're seeing the human side of it. I thought that really worked and I thought it was really effective. Yeah, definitely so. And I think that's a good reminder that a lot of the time we don't realize these are young people yeah. and also probably have been quite sheltered and not had to do a lot for themselves. Case in point, <laughs> uh, Deli Ali's yeah. latest set piece, which I think we can get to later. De- 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 Deli Ali's well. been, in many ways, the star of the show with his, with his, um, with his repertoire that he's come out with here. But uh, I think it was his finest moment that comes up later on. I, I agree with you entirely. Yeah. I also wanted to stick with that bell for a moment because that's the other thing I've been really enjoying with the series is little insights like that. Because you hear later on, I think when... Either Yuris or Vertonghen is doing a team talk. One of the coaches says, the bell is coming, the bell is coming. And I think they know that you've got to get the speech in either before or after. Usually before, I think, otherwise you run out of time. Because mm. otherwise it's going to be the bell going right over it. And it happens again later on. But moments <laughs> like that, like I didn't, it didn't occur to me that, of course, they're going to make a very aggressive bell ring in the locker room and the dressing room to tell the team, you've got to be out on the field, you've got to be in the tunnel, because everything has to be coordinated. I had never really put together that you have it that regimented to that degree until this series. So I enjoyed that, even if it meant that we couldn't quite hear what Harry Winks was saying. And you know, I most enjoyed, I think this Wolves game was very interesting for many reasons. We can get into that in a second. But uh, There was uh, Matt Doherty scoring the equaliser. We have been called up on the pronunciation of that Irishman's name. It's Do- Doherty. I'm, I'm just going to call him MD from now on. Um, and we had, I think it was, was this where Diet and Ali had a little argument and Mourinho seemed to smirk and like it a little bit? And that's a precursor of, to some of the uh, arguments that we see in the mm. next couple of episodes as well. Yeah. But the most incredible thing that happens at this Wolves game is a slight bit of camera work that happens before they come out on the field. There is a man cutting the grass with a pair of hand clippers, like little pliers, little shears. He's cutting the grass on the field with tiny clippers. 
That was amazing. There was a lot of field maintenance stuff going. There was like a a spray being put down that I think was designed to make the ball move faster. Yeah, the the hand trimming the line. A lot of attention to detail in there that I did appreciate. Yeah, that was that was a lot. I really enjoyed that. I just imagine some guy with clippers out there all day. Oh, hang on, there's a blade over uh, four yards over there it needs to be brought in line with every other one. Get the clippers. Don't worry about the, the lawnmower. Get the clippers out, please. That was wonderful. I like that. What I enjoyed less was some of the tactics that we did get in this game. There were moments of tactics in these final three episodes. And I think because that's something that Daryl and I tend to focus on, it's something I would have liked to see more of. So I want to say up front, like, we don't see everything. I'm sure there's more to it. But the way he talked about the Wolves game was a sort of big red flag from a tactic standpoint. Because everything he describes is exactly how Wolves play that he's listing as their strength. At the end, when he says, like... Basically, it comes down to us not fouling enough, us not being physical. That's their analysis for why they end up losing this game. But like he says, we had the majority of possession. We had better shooting chances. They could only like play on the counter. Like That's literally what Wolves are set up to do. So to yeah. some extent, as he's describing how it all was working for us, and they were only able to play on the counter, and that's the only time they had chances, it's like, yeah, that's the only time they want chances. And <laughs> it's more worrying to me later on when he uses this as inspiration for another game that does not seem like a logical connection to me at all, but we'll talk about that then. But the few moments we did get from a sort of tactical an, an analysis standpoint in these episodes, I thought did not look very good, and it extends to the Man United game, which we'll talk about later on. But this was the start for me of like, wait, you're describing the exact way Wolves want to play, and you're saying like, ha we have the advantage, and to some extent, mm. I don't know, it's like knowing that you're, the boxer is trying to set you up for like that one like lethal left hook, and like you keep just being like, yeah, it's like, it's like he's waiting to hit us with that left hit. He hasn't, he hasn't done it yet. Like He's just waiting to do it. I don't know why that's happening. And it's like, no, you're describing your own downfall. <laughs> Be more aware of what's about to happen. <laughs> so I thought that was, that was interesting, but I thought it was also interesting, as you've already alluded to, that this then leads to things getting a lot more handsy in a negative way, both within the t- in the team with Eric Dyer going into the stands, kind of forgot that yeah. happened and was excited to see it happen the way it does, though it felt a little bit forced, a little bit fake at times. Let's talk about Eric Dyer for a moment, shall we? Oh, I'd love to talk about Eric Dyer. Um, yeah, who's, who's kind of... Who, has he got the sort of shaved mohawk at this point, or does he, that come a little later? He goes full, no, that's after quarantine. He goes full villain. By the end of this, he straight up looks mm. like a villainous bully. Not yeah. saying he is, but he looks 100% like a, a meathead bully by the end of the series. The mohawk comes later. Here is when he goes into the stands with a uh, normal haircut. Yeah, so we've been, we've been teed up throughout this season that mm-hmm. he's the only one who, who's got any passion and fight in him. Yeah. I think we see him and Dyer go off, go off against each other in the Wolves game. I'm pretty sure that's when that happened. Him and Ali, you mean? Uh, sorry, yeah, him and yeah. Deli Ali, excuse me. Um, and Mourinho seems to smirkingly, oh, I like mm-hmm. it when my players go at each other. This is fun. And then we get to the Norwich game, which also tees up a new character who's been written into the series, Michelle Vaughan, who yeah. uh, also gets a nice oh. send-off at the end. Um, and uh, the Norwich game being a little bit disappointing with the with the going to the penalties and what, what, blah, blah, blah. But the Dyer fight, this is where mm-hmm. it happens, where Eric Dyer climbs up into the stands. And we get it's very interesting because we get a bit more context. We get him going back into the dressing room afterwards, um, which is also what we get when we get Son and Larissa's fight later yeah. on, which is really interesting. But there are some contrived moments here. There's the moment where uh, the, the, the word spreads that Dyer has done yeah. that. And there's the coaches watching it on their phones with some very fake superimposed footage mm-hmm. and sort of a reverse angle camera. When when you can see the original angle, 
the coach is sitting against the wall. There's no way they've set up that reverse angle at no. the same time. So they, they've definitely reshot some stuff and made it look a bit more dramatic. Uh, but it was a pretty dramatic moment. And it, it was interesting. He kind of, he painted it, the incident, Dyer did, in a slightly different way. The When he was complaining in the dressing room, it was about the fact that there were yeah. insults going around, but it was in the section where the families sit. Right. And his kind of position was, how dare they insult the team? in the seats where all our families sit. Yeah. That was kind of his vibe, wasn't it? Which was curious, I thought. I think it was, yeah, because it was like, my, my, that's where my sister sits, that's where my mother sits, and they were yelling like obscenities at my brother. So he responded to that. T- to some extent, I, I, I believe what he said because I don't think he's a very good actor. And I think there are other moments in the series, like when you, um, after he has the dust up with Deli Ali and you see them being very cute, uh, in the the lodge or whatever it is when they're preparing for a game and they're playing video games and he like eats candy out of Deli Ali's hand. Twice he makes jokes and you can sort of see him look at the camera like they got that. And I think he's not very good about being subtle with those moments. So as he's sort of ranting here, as he goes back into the locker room and explains his actions, I don't really think that he took the time to think like, okay, how do I spin this to make it seem like I wasn't just being irrational in the moment? I honestly think that is kind of what his experience was and what he was feeling. I think it's probably informed by the on-field frustration he's feeling. Uh, so I, I like that. It made me like him more at a time when then I don't really like him so much in the subsequent episodes. Yeah. And I, I, you're quite right that he's been painted, he's almost turning into this villain even yeah. in his looks. And that brings me, that reminds me of Tom Hardy's narration, who him uh, would die turning into Bane in real life. <laughs> I thought by these episodes that Tom Hardy is starting to sound like a normal human. A little bit. Like, I actually, I was so convinced that he was changing the way he was delivering. I actually went back and listened to the first couple of episodes where he is sounding like Richard Attenborough slash mm-hmm. a wizard and revealing the centre-backs three who will play. And, and then he's, he's, he's kind of speaking much more like, you'd expect Tom Hardy to speak by the end of this. Maybe because he's weary and it was the end of the uh, voiceover session by this point. (laughs) I still like, maybe it's his accent, maybe it's his combination of accents, but the way he says Premier League is, it gets very nasally and it becomes like Premier League. And I don't, that's the only one that continues to confuse me. The one that confused me for a long time while we're talking accents, I know you've got some thoughts on Ben Davies. I have not been able to figure out Lucas Mora, and I think I finally got it, which is that I'm fairly confident he learned English in France when he was with PSG, because he's Brazilian, obviously, he goes to PSG at a relatively young age, and I think he learned it there, which is why, though he is Brazilian, he speaks with a French accent, and it took Mm. me a while to figure out, like, I couldn't really get my head around the voice coming out of his face that was so French-sounding, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on there. So that was my one uh, linguistics lesson for the day. He had a little fight as well, didn't he? He did. Was that in the next he did, didn't he? He had a fight? Yeah. Yeah, with Serge Aurier, I think it was. You're That's always right. talking. You're always talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Communication's key. <laughs> it's, he had just watched Goodfellas, which I think is what Joe Pesci's mom says uh, in, in that movie. Um, anything else? I, I had one more point I wanted to make about episode seven before we move on. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned Michel Vorm there. I felt horrible for him because i forgot about the howler that happened and the way they sort of like constructed first of all again i think this is a little bit like forced that they're they're trying to build this idea that like he's come in he might change things maybe this will be the fresh start we need then he has the howler they end up getting eliminated from the cup but i think even in that team talk when the coach is explaining like why vorm is starting and you don't see any reaction from the goalkeepers it's because it's rotation right it's because they've played so many games that i think 
Like, it was just a normal, yeah, Gazaniga is tired. Hugo Lloris is not yet back to full fitness. So we're going to give this guy a chance. We're going to give Gazaniga a break. Um, and I kept wondering then, like, why does it sound like Michel Vorm is about to cry the whole time? Because it really, he, he kept, the talking head is clearly conducted after the game. And it's him talking about all his preparation. And, you know, I haven't played in 18 months, so I'm really nervous. And I was like, what? I, I guess they're constructing a narrative of, like, and he's going to come in and get make something good happen. And then to see him have that howler, and it immediately cuts to him looking out the window and does genuinely look like he's about to cry. I felt absolutely horrible for him in that moment. I thought it was effective document documentary making, even if it was sort of heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, I go along with that. And I think that feeling continues when we get to the end of the series as well, when they have their goodbyes, and I'll explain more on that later. All right, all right. I look forward to more on that later. Right now, I look forward to a word from today's sponsor, courtesy of our friend Paul Tenorio. Hi, this is Paul Tenorio from The Athletic. When I buy dress shirts off the rack, I tend to end up with shirts that drape off my broader shoulders and look boxy on me. Just the other day on vacation, we took a family photo, and the shirt I wore just looked way too big and wide. It was amazing how much better the photo looked when I switched into my new Indochino shirt. My wife and I had taken my measurements at home on Indochino.com and sent them in, and my new shirt emphasizes my shoulders, but cuts in so much better across my chest and stomach. I looked and felt way more confident and stylish. With Indochino, you can get custom-fitted suits, coats, shirts, and casual wear at surprisingly affordable prices, and you can customize everything from the fabric to the lining and the lapel shape, even add a monogram. The best part... Indochino's suits start at just $299 with all customizations included, and it's super easy to order and get it shipped fast no matter where you live. So go visit one of the Indochino showrooms across North America, or do what I did, book a virtual appointment and shop online at Indochino.com. And right now, you'll get $30 off any purchase of $399 or more when you enter code ATHLETIC at checkout. That's Indochino.com, promo code athletic thank you to paul tenorio and indochino for sponsoring today's episode of the total soccer show we finished episode seven leipzig does stuff i have episode eight rise of covid should we talk covid or should we talk the uh the leipzig game first i shouldn't make light of that but that was quite funny well done <laughs> I, I i it really it just felt that way um let, let's go with covid first and we'll probably go back to it a couple times but okay i felt that way because and i and i think you picked like you felt the same that there are moments in this of like oh what an adorable time it was when it was like oh are we elbowing are we are we allowed to shake hands anymore and it's all these little jokes about like oh wouldn't it be funny what's gonna happen how does it like there's so much i forgot that we were all sort of like ah, it'll be a week and we'll be right back to it things are different ryan things are different than what we thought they were going to be in early march yeah, it, was, it seems very quaint when they're talking mm -hmm. about the Premier League maybe shutting down for three weeks. When they go to Burnley and there's no, there's no handshakes. Actually, when they go to Burnley, there's no fans in the stands, but that's just because it's Burnley. Um, <laughs> they haven't had the, uh, the, the, empty, <laughs> the, the edict to do that just yet. It, it's all very interesting, as you say, how they're, they're sort of learning, like we all did. Oh, do we have to bump elbows now? Oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> if only they knew what we knew. If only they knew. The, I, want, I want to pause on the Burnley, if only. I want to pause on the Burnley one for a moment because I think another thing that I hadn't really been paying attention to until these couple episodes, this one especially, is when it, it hits home, is we keep seeing the, the new stadium, the Spurs home locker room, and how 
fancy it is and everybody has their own locker and their own space and it's all so nice. Mm. And then the Burnley locker room of the away dressing room is hilarious. And if people <laughs> yeah. missed it, just go back. It is a claustrophobic closet <laughs> that that team is shoved into. And I know that that's, you know, partially because Burnley are Burnley. They don't have the resources of Tottenham. I'm sure it's also a little bit like the old Cleveland Browns stadium where it was the uh, like the intentionally claustrophobic locker room right under the most hardcore fans. I think there's probably an element of that. But from then on, I was paying attention to all the away dressing rooms. And they're all, even Leipzig's, which you would assume would be very nice and modern, is pretty poor. It's a lot of benches. And I think Newcastle's almost looks like it's a cinder block wall. The away dressing room aspect of things is something I had never really thought about and am now kind of obsessed with. Thank you, Burnley, yeah. for that. That's interesting because um, I think a lot of Premier League stadiums, certainly older ones, are set up like that where the away dressing room is deliberately worse. And you see it at Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park as well, where it's uh, in the last game where it's... It is not a Crystal Palace, yes. It's a boxy little room. There is no crystal or palatial (laughs) elements in that um, away dressing room, that's for sure. Uh, And I remember, well, Wimbledon back in the day, my team, when we were at Plough Lane, we're about to return to Plough Lane, which I'm very happy about. But they they said in the away dressing room, they deliberately turn off the hot water and they would, you know, leave it dirty. And it was all part of the mentality of trying to make the away team feel as unwelcome as possible. So there's probably an element of that in there. And I would say... We haven't seen the away dressing room at the Tottenham Stadium either. I don't. No, we haven't. I I really wanted to. I don't think it's going to be as round, circular, glamorous with everyone's names on on, on iPads above their space. Um, But then again, it is used as an NFL stadium, and they want to use it for more international and national things. They're probably a bit more on par with one another. To be fair, those (sighs) locker rooms. Interestingly, when we're talking about about locker rooms, as the um, coronavirus uh, starts to kick in and they come in post coronavirus, they no longer sit in their sort of semicircle. No, they don't. They come and sit in the middle of the room because that's super safe. Yeah. And we and we don't see the uh, the the team cheers arms around each other anymore. Uh, you're right; they do start to change things a little bit. You're absolutely right that if you're going to be an international stadium where you want to have a bunch of different venues, you don't really want one team, one NFL team traveling all the way over there to be in a claustrophobic locker room is not yeah. going to make NFL teams go play there. So you're right; it probably is at least somewhat on par, or can easily be made to be on par. Good point, Ryan. I hadn't thought about that, and now. I really want to see the away dressing room all the more. I'm going to have to look, look up some photos afterward. Um, the other You're thing going to have I'm, to go and uh, do the tour on the Skywalk now just to find out. Hard pass on all of that. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I've never really enjoyed the, the stadium tour. It reminds me of the brewery tour. I remember when I first did a brewery tour and I was like, oh, it must be like free beer. I was expecting like Willy Wonka, basically. And it's not. It's just a bunch of mechanical equipment that works and makes beer eventually, but you don't get to drink the beer. You just get to see, like, this is where the grain goes in. Like, all right, this is now a science project. Let's go back to to drinking. To be fair, fair, I've only done one stadium tour ever. It was the old Wembley Stadium, like the classic Wembley Stadium when I was a little kid. I can still remember it, though. I remember two aspects of it specifically. Um, They had the crossbar from Jeff Hurst hitting the crossbar uh, in the 1966 World Cup final, just mounted in a wall. It wasn't behind a wasn't in a case or anything. It was just in a wall. You could touch it. Um, and also, uh, when you went out onto the field up the tunnel, they played like crowd noises, and it was really super tinny and underwhelming. I couldn't remember that much. That was, uh, but it, obviously, old, old Wembley was. I think that was, and I loved, I loved going I think that was just a normal reception at Wembley. Um, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to point out here, because I went back uh, for this Burnley game, which Spurs draw one to one on the road, they mention. Uh, Jose Mourinho was forced to bring on Lucas Mora and Giovanni Lo Celso at halftime. I looked it up. 
it is indeed uh, uh, Oliver Skip who's replaced, and it's Endombele who is replaced. So th- we already have this sort of uh, situation with Endombele where Jose's being asked about it consistently. Why isn't he playing? What's going on? And doing a little bit of research outside of the show, that starts on Boxing Day, is when Jose Mourinho sort of publicly says, I don't really know why he's playing. He never seems fit. This game we should notice happening in early March. So it's basically been three months of Endombele not playing, not playing regularly. We do eventually get that in the final episode, I believe it was. But this is another example of things that kind of aren't being discussed or maybe being left to the side because either it's a repetitive narrative, like we don't just want to hear over and over and over again that, oh, it's still not working for Undabelli, it's still not working, it's still not working. Yeah. Or I think because they just sort of, it's an awkward situation that doesn't necessarily get resolved. But I did sort of, again, enjoy finding those little pieces, going back and looking it up and being like, wait, what was happening here? Was that actually what was going on? And in this case, yeah, it is Undabelli who was not performing up to snuff. Yeah, and yeah, and, and to, to get back to the coronavirus stuff as yeah, well, please. there was some really interesting stuff about when it was breaking, when it was, when it was, when the realization was setting in that things weren't going to be normal, and they repeated this several times, like saying, "Players, you can't go on vacation; you have to stay home." And I think the narration said it like the players are just realizing this, and then like Harry Kane would say, "We're just realizing this," yeah. and it was sort of really hammered home that things were going to be very different. And we had, um, I've looked up the name of it, the Australian head physio who. Mourinho doesn't make eye contact. Oh, with. I can't wait. Make, uh, Jeff Scott is his name, the sourpuss. Right. Um, he actually makes eye contact with Jose for the first time ever when they're in the Burnley um, mm-hmm. uh, dressing room. Uh, when, uh, but Oh, no, no, no. It's, it, they're in Jose's office. There's a scene yeah. where Jose is just staring at the whiteboard mm-hmm. with the Burnley lineup on it. He's just staring at it for about 10 seconds. And then the physio comes in and it's, it's, he breaks his gaze from the Burnley starting 11. So that's the first moment we see Jeff Scott actually catch Mourinho's eye and then he sort of features more when coronavirus comes in he's the one who explains everything how everything's going to work how distancing is going to work how they're probably not going to be playing games etc and what was really interesting was this moment of innocence we saw from Mourinho he kind of puts his hand up and says what do we do what do we do with training Mm -hmm. what's going to happen here please Jeff Scott who I hate with every ounce of my soul tell me what to do yeah. I mean, because you, you in that moment are realizing, like, again, maybe it's reshot or whatever. But in that moment, it was a like, oh, right. Nobody knew. Nobody understood what was happening. To some extent, I was like, I wish I had this. I wish I had a doctor briefing me on what the protocols are going to be and how it's going to work. Yeah. I do appreciate that the they're all pretty professional, the players, and sort of respond to it accordingly. We'll talk a little bit more about how Spurs react to it. Um, but I think I figured out, uh, Jeff Scott, the Australian physio, I think I figured out what at least my issue with him is, and it's that go back and watch. I I think he's never not smiling, and I think that's maybe him having to deliver bad news and this player's injured, he can't play, you're going to be out for three months, that sort of news. So he always, I think, is trying to be positive. Mm. But, like, I, I can't do a very good Aussie accent. I have to go to, like, the, that's not a knife. All right, now I'm good. Uh, like you, he, I expect him to walk and be like, hey, Jose, real quick, uh, all your nightmares are true, and I'll see you later. Bye. Like, I, I went into my American accent. I did a Winona <laughs> Ryder there. But uh, it, it really was, like, he would he would just sort of like, oh, uh, real quick, Sun Human will never play again. Have a good one. Bye. Like, he's always smiling as he does it. And I have a feeling that that is what enrages Mourinho. And I do think it's a little bit of an affectation because as things get very serious with coronavirus, that drops. And then we do see more interaction. That's when we see Mourinho talk about how four months in my house, I can't do two days in my house. And I think that is a real thing that he needs that contact with players. We see that a lot with his training squad that or training team. 
Yeah. There's always high fives. There's always handshakes. There's a lot of hugging. I think it's a very physical, touchy group. And so you start to see, I think, that realization of how things are going to be. To some extent, like my grandkids, I feel like could watch this and get an idea of what the kind of panic in the moment was like. It gets glossed over a little bit. We don't see a ton of what things are like during lockdown, during quarantine. But it still is a good insight into that, that panic, that fear, that sort of uncertainty that I think everybody was experiencing around this time. Taylor, promise me one day when you've got your grandkids, you're not going to sit them around the TV and make them watch All or Nothing from Tottenham's 2019-20 season. I won't promise you things that I can't promise, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> That's what I say to that. <laughs> I will promise to work on my Aussie accent. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jess got walking in and go, coronavirus? I'd have called it Chaz Wazers, mate. <laughs> Another Simpsons reference. We're up to three. There we go. There we go. Um, uh, juxtaposed with the sort of spread of coronavirus, the talk about it is the second leg of the Leipzig game, which yep. I remembered as being an absolute massacre. I think mm-hmm. what I did was conflate Spurs getting sort of destroyed by Bayern Munich in the group stage with this knockout round game. That said, they lose 4-0 on aggregate. Not a good result at all. The thing that I thought was especially worrying, going back to a tactics point I made earlier, is in this he says, remember the Wolves game, we must prepare exactly like that. That we are preparing for our opponent to play that way. RB Leipzig and Wolves play not similar styles at all. The only thing I can figure is that he meant we have to foul. We have to be strategic in our fouling because, again, that's the takeaway from that Wolves game is we're letting them play. They're very cynical. They foul when they need to to stop transitions. We need to do that. But the message seemed to have been, like, we have to press them because they're going to sit back. We have to go at them and try to take the game to them, which is how Leipzig want to play. So that felt right away like maybe they were set up to fail, and that is pretty much exactly how that went down. Yeah, I think your memory was quite correct on that game. It was very much a massacre. Uh, And to be fair, I don't think they tried to dress that one up as being Mm -mm. really pro-Spursy like they did the first leg. But um, one interesting thing is on the trip to Leipzig, I think Daniel Levy goes there and he has a meeting with uh, another new character they write in. I think she's the managing director who features reasonably heavily mm-hmm. in the last two episodes and there's uh, a, a, another financial controller in the room there's three of them having a, a chat about the financial statement which they're going to release uh, and they're worried about the financial effect of the cron- the uh, impending coronavirus shutdown mm-hmm. uh, and the manager director crucially says that she doesn't think they're going to shut down stadiums so it kind of shows you where we're at with the thinking yeah. at this point. And, and, and I think so far, she goes so far as to say, like, to do that, they'd have to shut down schools and public transport and workplaces. And obviously, they're not going to do that. So maybe, maybe things will change. We'll see. But I think we're OK. And it is a like, oh, again, maybe we didn't quite see what was coming, coming. Yeah. Quaint. So quaint once again. Yeah. But, um, this is also when we get Daniel Levy talking about uh, we we care only about our fans and our staff at this time. And that sandwich between them talking about revenue and expected losses and how they're not <laughs> going to do as much and how they need to prepare for their stockholders meeting. Then he says we care about our fans and our staff only. And then it goes back to, but of course, we're going to be losing money and they've bought tickets. And now they're going to. And I think he's trying to say in that moment that like they've bought tickets and we've got to be able to tell them like what's going to happen. They want to know. But. All along, I feel like they cut out the part where he said, like, and they're going to want their money back if we don't yeah. play, and we can't do that. Like, I think they did not want to show any of the financial side, and that's where we don't get 
any of the Spurs deciding to furlough their staff, which, again, when he says, all we care about is the safety and security of our staff, not sure about that. Yeah. We don't see the reversal of that decision. We don't see the uh, loan from the government, that conversation as well, which was a really big thing. And one of the major stories of the shutdown was how clubs responded, clubs furloughing staff or taking money. Weirdly, we get Chelsea's. Like footage of Chelsea Stadium shut down and Chelsea did open it up. They did like allow the NHS to stay there and then we see Spurs do that afterwards. So yes. that even seemed a little bit odd to me at the time. Ryan, did you have thoughts on how they were sort of depicting things in that moment or was that just sort of me being focused on Daniel Levy saying one thing and doing another? No, yeah, that, I think that's fair. That was a little bit of gloss on that moment in making Tottenham look maybe better than they were. That was a very embarrassing U-turn that they, and I believe Liverpool had to do it, didn't they? And Barcelona mm-hmm. did the same thing in Spain as well, where they had, well, they didn't U-turn on it, but um, Tottenham were very much embarrassingly forced in public, uh, like Marcus Rashford dressing down the Prime Minister, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, they were forced to backtrack, uh, and which seeing the futuristic world they all live in and, those, you know, another thing, those lovely sort of latte looking shakes that they're always drinking yeah. with, the, with the stripy straws. Mm-hmm. I think they must have a really big stripy straw budget. Anyway, yeah. that's an aside. At a time when we're all obsessed with like, I would assume those would be like recyclable straws, even if those oh. things disintegrate after five seconds. But yeah, I, I was sort of like, and I thought that that was a good, again, good documentary making that they, they're sort of talking about how these players maybe aren't mentally prepared for this. Jose says, like, I think they think it's going to be a holiday and they won't be allowed to leave their homes. And we do get that one. I think the nutritionist putting out these delicious looking smoothies. And it's just a reminder yeah. of like, yeah, you're not going to be getting that every single day. You're not going to have a, a, a nice berry smoothie with a colorful straw waiting for you after training. You're going to have to make that for yourself. Yeah, or we can send a bunch to your house, but we do have to let go and furlough the guy who with the clippers before the Wolves game. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's just the compromise we've had to make for your stripy straws. Enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, what was interesting when, when they do go uh, into lockdown, you've got the training session that's conducted on Zoom. And we get some kind of cute moments of, yeah. I think there's someone with their baby daughter yeah. trying to walk over them while they're planking uh, and all the, all the players in their respective homes. But the shot we get of it, is Joseph Radio yeah. watching them all on a giant screen while they trade on Zoom, sort of going, excellent. Yeah. Um, it was a little Big Brother style, and it, it, was, it did feel like this is a thing that they're going to want in the future. It's like cameras in every yeah. player's home. I want to be able to see what you're doing at all times to make sure you're properly preparing. I am watching you through a camera. <laughs> Fourth Simpsons reference, thank you very much. Um, it was very interesting with Mourinho watching that on a big screen as if that was something he would actually do in real life. It was just a sort of very much a, this is what it looks, this looks cool on camera. Uh, and it's, yeah, like it was part minority report. It was part sliver. Do you remember that film? Yeah, creepy. Vaguely? <laughs> it was, it was a man watching people on cameras in their homes, basically that film. Um, and yeah, all, all very strange. And the strangest part was, why is Josie at the training ground when they're all at home? That's an interesting point. I didn't think about that. Does he not uh, have a maybe, screen big enough at home to watch everybody? Maybe that was a, a, a subtle nod. It wasn't, but what I'm choosing to believe, it was a subtle nod to the fact that we know that they broke quarantine, Spurs and I believe Mourinho. <laughs> so that's another element that I felt like if you want to do all or nothing, if you truly are touting it as we have access to everything – to not mention that time that, like, like this is the second time during coronavirus where a person has said something that we sort of know wasn't true. That, like, we're taking it very seriously, we're, we're concerned about the spread, everybody is abiding by the rules, and that's how it went down. And, like, oh, none of us saw each other during lockdown, even though several of us were seen publicly training together, allegedly at Mourinho's uh, 
uh, request. So I think things like that I would have preferred to have just seen a moment of like, oh, we got in trouble, but we're moving on. Like, it doesn't need to be a big thing, but I think those sort of touchstones help it feel slightly more grounded than the, we took it seriously the whole time and Deli Ali learned how to make baked beans. We oh. haven't talked about Deli Ali learning how to make baked beans yet. So we, we, we really got the, the three-pronged attack from Deli Ali in this series. We had him with his toothbrush talk, with the big mm-hmm. toothbrush debate. Yep. We had him comparing uh, non-copyright, non-existent um, chocolate bars. Yep. And then we get the growth element of Deli Ali. He's come back from quarantine. He's a new man. He's learned a new skill, Taylor. He has learned how to prepare a new dish. What is that dish, you ask? <laughs> it's baked beans. Uh, so did you put them in the microwave? Yeah. Well, the thing I have to back up to say is that you're absolutely right with the way you... He was like, I learned to make beans for the first time. And it is a, like, he's saying it, I think, sort of, like, aware of how silly he sounds. But the person he's talking to says, oh, did you make them on the stove? And as she says, uh, stove, he says, yeah, the microwave. And she's like, oh, the microwave. And you can hear her, like, like <laughs> do the quick adjustment to the, like, oh, you didn't even make them on the stove. Oh, you made a microwave. Yeah, of course. That's what you would do. As opposed to, like, you didn't even make, you didn't make them on the stove. You learned to put a thing into a microwave and hit a button. Good for you, Deli. Good for you. <laughs> and uh, at the risk of stealing your joke when we spoke off air, I'm pretty uh, sure he left the can in there and the can opener. Right. <laughs> it's, I was waiting for that part of like, I learned to make baked beans. I didn't know that the microwave has to explode for them to be done. <laughs> <laughs> you never put metal in the science oven. We all know that now. We all the know that now. Oven. I hope Deli Ali does too. Oh, I'm just glad that he's grown as a human during this whole experience, if anything. I mean, we didn't get to see much of him on the field at this point, so at least we learned no, that he, we didn't. <laughs> he made fake beans. No, we didn't. But we do, uh, I think we, we make it through coronavirus uh, relatively unscathed. We don't hear about them breaking quarantine. We do learn about Dele Ali making baked beans. And then we have the Man United game that... Is sort of at the end of this episode, but I think also plays a big part in the start of the next one. So we can talk about that now, or we can take a break. Which would you prefer, Ryan Bailey? Can I squeeze in one more little Easter egg? I know. Let's do that, and then and then we'll take a break. Just a tiny one. Just a tiny one. The uh, new character managing director written into the series in episode eight, when she's talking to them all in the canteen Mm -hmm. over her shoulder, an Alexa speaker just casually sitting on the table. What nice bit of Amazon product placement. Wow. (laughs) Recording everything. It's all documented. Nothing happened in that canteen that isn't recorded on on Amazon's servers right now. That's actually how they filmed the the series. They just put different Alexas around the Tottenham training ground and just said they were normal Alexas, given given them for free. But then they recorded everything, and that's how they got a lot of the footage. Hey, Alexa, make a nine-part documentary and see if Tom Hardy's agent's available. (laughs) That's That's all they did. And then Alexa spat out the series. I hope that you just made someone's Alexa do oh, something with that one. Let's hope so. <laughs> I hope um, someone's programmed the Tom Hardy skill into their Alexa. <laughs> I, I would take Tom Hardy as my... I, I do not use an Alexa. I am fairly concerned about them monitoring all things and learning what I can't live without and then raising the prices on them. I feel a little bit like Bill Burr, and I'm fine with it. But I would maybe entertain it more if I could have Tom Hardy voice. I wouldn't mind that, especially if it was the sort of fluctuating accents and pronunciations of Tom <laughs> Hardy in this documentary. Very good. 
Love it. Before we talk about the final episode and our overall conclusions, we should talk about today's sponsor. It's LinkedIn. Small businesses have unique needs. And despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. We have seen that in this series. Jose wants the right people, not the wrong people. I don't know if you can put literal fighter on your resume. I wouldn't advise <laughs> that. I think Dwight Trout tried that and it didn't work out, so I wouldn't recommend it. But when your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn job can help you by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. You don't want a bunch of Jeff Scotts when you're building no. your company, frankly. And LinkedIn Jobs is a place where you... Actually, let's look up. I bet Jeff Scott's on there, to be fair. I'm on there, too. Uh, I, I think we discussed this before. I only recently was enlightened by LinkedIn and, and joined it. Um, but I found it very productive. And LinkedIn Jobs, by the way, is excellent. And I raised this point last time we spoke about it, too. Of all the places you can look for jobs... I think it's the best one. Why User is that? experience well, is wonderful. Everything's okay. tailored because uh, it, the best thing about it, if you're from, uh, from the user perspective, is that it's tailored towards your resume. So all the jobs that I see on it are stuff that I think I could do. I probably couldn't because I'm not very talented in any areas, but it's things I think I could actually do. So that's why this is very, very impressive for me. I am now trying to think like what would be the Tottenham job posting for like a, uh, a first team player. Like, would it be, like, must be a fighter, must be able to take criticism, like, must be able to physically fight in the locker room? What, what do you think Jose wants if he's looking for players, if he's hiring a player? Yeah, passion, fighting, uh, optional skills, uh, microwaving uh, foods. <laughs> <laughs> Banter is a good one. Yeah. An ability uh, a to ability laugh. to uh, uh, be violent against your teammates and yeah. be rewarded for it. Those are yeah. all good things. Yeah, laugh at my awkward jokes that try to de-escalate tension but don't really work. Uh, uh, no let's barrel, talk about no that No double-barreled names, though, please. No double-barreled names. They're not accepted around here. <laughs> oh, yeah, no double-barreled names. That is definitely a rule. Uh, so when your business is ready to make that next hire, do not uh, discriminate it on the basis of double-barrel double names. That would get you in trouble. But you can find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the f and get your first posting $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash TSS. Again, that's linkedin.com slash TSS to get $50 off your first job post terms and conditions do apply and i'm going to add c website for full details and safety information because i don't think that belongs but why not just throw that one in anyway thank you very much to linkedin for sponsoring today's show let's talk episode nine ryan and let's talk manchester united which i think is the very end of episode eight but feels like a continuation of what we've been talking about uh only this time we get to hear jose Mourinho talk about paul pogba and as a manchester united fan i really enjoyed it very interesting see uh yeah uh Jose playing against one of his former teams, of course. I think the only thing I noted about this is was this, this is the first time we saw them sitting spaced out in the dressing room. Though, so yeah. you, might have to, you might have to elaborate on it. Uh, wait, elaborate on which thing? About his team talk? Yeah. It's, it's essentially, yeah. So it's them kind of like socially distanced in their chairs. And Jose Mourinho's halftime talk... Uh, with Spurs playing like pretty well, is essentially Paul Pogba's going to come on. He can do anything. We must deal with him. He will do anything. We must stop him. He will. He can play the ball here. He can play the ball there. It's it's very aware of the threat that Paul Pogba poses. And I don't know if this is like my fandom sort of being triggered a little bit, but I felt like, again, this was a confusing moment from a documentary standpoint because this felt like a moment in which Jose was again saying – this is their critical player who, if you give him time and space, can unlock a defense. He is very good on the ball. And to some extent, like I thought it was funny that he focused so much on Pogba, but I also think that there's a lot of truth to it, that we cannot let him have time. We cannot let him turn under pressure or without pressure. Otherwise, he will pick us apart. 
And that is sort of what happens in this game. As I recall, that Pogba comes in and is immediately the best passer Manchester United have. He alleviates so many of like the, like a lot of the pressure because it was all sort of incumbent upon Bruno Fernandes to make things happen. Pogba plays in passes. I think he plays in the ball that leads to the penalty and is so good. And that was where I was confused because I felt like we were they were building this idea of Jose says you have to stop him. And then Tottenham go out and once again don't. And instead, there's the like there's the penalty. Then there's the penalty that isn't given that uh, is overturned by VAR at the very end. Yeah. And instead, the narrative I felt like the takeaway was like again we're just losing or we're not getting the points and we don't know why and we can't figure it out. And again, maybe this is my bias, but this felt like a moment of like, well, I know why you're not getting the results is because you didn't shut down the one guy your coach said you have to. So mm-hmm. th- right there, that felt like a strange sort of like I don't think that's how these things went down. Suddenly, I feel like maybe this is a little bit more narrative than I was expecting. Uh, Mike, a couple of notes here. Um, I do enjoy, on this footage, the noise of the ball hitting the back of the net and hitting the stanchions. Yeah. It's very enjoyable in the empty stadium. I think um, that was, that was the case here. I would have liked to have seen more beautiful slow-motion footage of Fernandez jumping in the air like a little sprite as he took his penalty. Yep. Can I give you my conspiracy theory about the Please. half-time team talks? Sure. I think there's... I think they actually give a regular team talk, Jose does, yeah. in which he tells you the secret source that he doesn't want broadcast. Yeah. And the stuff we see is maybe a little bit afterwards where they go over the more obvious kind of things. Yeah. So I think they get more detail and they get the stuff that Jose doesn't want you to see. And then it's cameras on. Let's do a little bit of, hey, Wolves are very good in this way. Manchester United have got a very good midfielder, etc. Yeah. Which, And I think that makes a lot of sense because... I should then add that, like, I'm a, like a, a dork. I'm a soccer dork, and I want to see the like. Oh, he thought Ben Mee was doing this and made this adjustment. Like, no, but most people don't want to see that. My wife, who might watch the documentary, is not going to be interested in the tactics. She's going to want to know. Oh, they got into a fight. How did that get resolved? What happened here? Why did Jose look so angry in this moment? Like, and so I think you're absolutely right. I don't really begrudge them for not following through on some of that because I think it, it probably loses a lot in translation. Mm. But for me. As like a kind of tactics dork, I think that was a thing that I was kind of keeping an eye on and a little bit bummed out by. But you're right. I think me being slightly sad that there weren't more tactics is a fair sacrifice if they want a broader audience to watch the show. Yeah, I don't think so. And I think there's, a, as I say, an element of they don't want to reveal everything, um, which I think is probably fair enough. Yeah. By the way, did your wife watch all of it with you? She did not. She watched a few episodes here and there. I think she liked... What she saw from Mourinho, but overall, I think was happy to watch other things. Is she a soccer fan? Like, would, how did she engage with it? So she didn't get into it as much as she did with Sunderland Till I Die. I mm. think because she knows more. Like she, she is more aware of who Tottenham are. She definitely knows who Jose Mourinho is. She's a nominal Inter Milan fan, uh, so I think remembers him from that time period. But is not as interested, and I think also. The characters, while bigger, are much more self-aware than I think some of the people in Sunderland Till I Die. So I think she gravitated towards that one a little bit. She definitely stayed and watched all of those, whereas with All or Nothing, she would watch one and then get up and go do something else. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I found this very engaging. That's very curious. I thought it was more engaging than, than Sunderland Till I Die, for sure. I agree. I, yeah. 
Yep, I liked it a lot. I liked episode nine because we see some things we haven't seen. This is where we finally deal a little bit with Endombele. But I want to start with the West Ham game uh, where we get Honest Jose. And I think that is a thing that I've I've wanted to see that at halftime they're not playing well against West Ham. And yeah. he he I think this there are moments when we see why he's a good manager and what it takes to be a good manager. And halftime here he says, like, if we don't win this, our season is done. And that is, like, what's at stake. And you can't go back on that. You can't, at the end of it, be like, but actually, it's going to be fine. And we do start to see in this episode, we see him sort of introducing reality to the team of, like, and if not Champions League, maybe Europa League. Europa League is important. And we keep hearing more and more about Europa League, I think, as he's realizing we're not going to get Champions League. We need to hope we can get Europa League. And you see him pivot that way. And I think in this game, we see him honestly saying, if we don't win this... Our season is sort of done, and nobody wants that. It was revealing to me because I think if I had watched this game, I would have been like, there's no way he says that at halftime. No coach ever will say the season's done because they don't want to concede that point. They don't want to basically throw in the towel. So I was kind of shocked to see that that is, in fact, exactly what Jose Mourinho does in this game. Oh, is this a we've added it afterwards because we know we won 2-0 moment? I don't know. I don't know. That would be interesting if the game before he said the same thing and they didn't win. (laughs) Yeah. But this was definitely the angriest we've seen yeah. Jose up to this point. And the only time we see him angrier is the Sheffield United game, um, yeah. which follows shortly after, where I believe he says the line, you are more intense in the effing training session yeah. than you are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and this um, this West Ham game is couched with the cold open of this episode. There's some good cold opens in these last yeah, few episodes. The cold open here is uh, Jose talking about that fight for fifth, maybe sixth, maybe the Mm. Europa League. And it's just like how far Mourinho has fallen when you take a step back from that. That is, we've seen shaved head Jose Mourinho. This is Jose slouching in the chair and slightly giving up on life. Europa League, maybe, guys. Let's shoot for that, shall we? Why not? Doesn't he say say that at the very end? Like, if you told me years ago that, like, I would be obsessed with did we finish sixth in the Premier League, like, I would not believe you. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's like, but I think that's all within the the idea of when I took this team over, they were 14th. We'll talk about the conclusions later on. Well, uh, he always says, um, you know, his lines are always, I always, I'm a winner. I always win trophies. His, Mm -hmm. His specific line in this episode is, I always qualify for Europe. Oh. Which itself is a trophy. Oh, no. That's no good. <laughs> That's no good. I also – I don't know if it was no good the way we sort of were introduced to and saw Endombele, uh, but that is a, a big part of this episode is getting a little bit more backstory to him and who he is. We see him interacting with Sergio Aurea and Musa Sissoko. Yes. Also feels like um, – my wife does enjoy the like Teen Mom, uh, 90 Day Fiance shows, and you can always tell when the producers have said like, "Okay, I need you to go out to like get a meal with your friend," and your friend needs to ask like, "So what's up with you and Jeremy now?" <laughs> like they have to ask the like question so that then you can get the the main person saying like, "I don't know what's gonna happen. It's gonna be interesting." And like that, it felt like that a lot in the, these episodes because maybe those three do hang out, but there's another one when it's like. I forget who Son is hanging out with, but it's just like, there's no way that you two are friends. Like, you're clearly being put in the same space to be talking heads and pretend like you're interacting normally. Uh, the, the, the one with Endomele was interesting because when he's with Sissoko, when he's with Aurier, when they're speaking in French, which he speaks fluently, obviously, there's a lot more back and forth. You get the chemistry. You get how they're all sort of vibing. Then when they switch to English, which I think they do for documentary purposes – 
And I think Ndombele doesn't speak very good English, still doesn't, which is uh, a criticism some have lobbed at him. But in this moment, he then is just like, I love football. And you can tell, like, he's not comfortable. He doesn't really know what to do in this moment because he can't very very well say, like, yeah, I'm super frustrated. I don't really understand what's happening. I don't think they want that. I think they want the sound bite. So I liked seeing the squad interaction. I don't know if we got a lot from it in that moment. Yeah, sorry to interrupt there, but no, that, was, that was curious when those three were talking. And it was, uh, I think look, he said, it's complicated when you change country. Yeah. And there's me thinking, most players change country when they come to these kind of clubs. It's okay. And most people deal with it better. Most people are fitter. But that's me being cynical. He does make a lot of excuses for himself. And he does yeah. so when he has that meeting um, with the player liaison officer, which yeah. is a very awkward interaction as well. But that moment when he breaks from French to say, I love football. And he's sort of laughing yeah. at the end of that. And then it cuts away. I read that as being sarcastic. As oh, yeah. Say, I'm having a terrible time right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think and, and, and the smile afterwards of the like, like, I have got to say this. Like, I don't know what else to do here, but I'm kind of angry that I'm having to say it. Like, yeah, yeah. no, I, that was not a I didn't get that as like, I love it. It's great. I'm not sure that's how they were trying to play it either i also don't know how his meeting with jose went down because we don't see that but again from that athletic piece he has a meeting with jose first it's similar to what danny rose had when danny rose has his meeting with jose Mourinho, then goes and meets with daniel levy and we don't see that interaction should Mm -hmm. note they left out of that documentary i didn't realize this that danny rose meeting with jose Mourinho, where he begins it by saying like what's your problem with me is in relation to i think the game before jose said danny rose was injured and that's why he didn't play which was not true i had forgotten about that drama that that Danny Rose was not hurt but Jose Mourinho publicly said he was so I think that's just worth remembering that we do miss some of the interaction we don't know what Jose says to Ndombele we don't know how that conversation went down we do have good insight into what happens with in the Daniel Levy meeting and it was a bit of a head scratcher for me what was your thoughts on that uh that conversation it all seems so awkward and unnecessary, that whole interaction. Yeah. I don't know how contrived it was and set up for the cameras, but having the player liaison officer hammering home the fact that Ndombele doesn't speak English or yeah. very good English. And to me, it was just like, it was when you called into your boss's office and he just tries to impart wisdom on you, but doesn't yeah. practically help you in any way. It no. was Daniel Levy saying, well, you know, when I was at school, they told mm-hmm. me I should leave school uh, and, and go and sweep chimneys, governor. But then so, I, just, I, I decided that I'll go and work hard and get A-levels yeah. and, and I'll go to university. The moral of this story is I'm really great and came back from adversity yeah. and you should do that too. Yeah, and also his adversity was when I was at my, I'm going to assume, incredibly snooty prep school. (laughs) They they said I wasn't smart enough, but I turned out to be smart enough. So you've been going Simpsons, I'll go with my office analogy of Michael Scott saying, like, the day after they told me I failed math and had to repeat it, I went out and scored more goals than anybody in the history of the hockey team. (laughs) It's like, yeah, that's not... First of all, that sounds like an over-the-top boast, but second of all, I'm not sure it's going to resonate with the guy who's missing his family and hasn't yet bedded in. But I also thought... Some of the interactions, again, there might be edits here, but from what we saw at least, and that's what I'm going off of, I think there is kind of an assumption that this is the new player thing, that you're coming from a different country, you're sort of not betting in, you're not used to the way the team wants to play or what the manager wants, you're not used to the city, you're not used to the media, all of these things. And so Daniel Levy like says right, right away, like you know, this is something we hear, this is something that happens, it's not an uncommon problem. 
But I think I'm correct in saying that Endon Ballet, he never says that. He never says, like, I'm having, he makes excuses, don't get me wrong. But I don't think his excuse is, like, I, I just can't figure out things. I don't know why. He says, like, I know that I'm not 100%, and I think that's true. What he actually says is, when I came here, I trained really well, and I didn't play, so there must be another issue. And I think mm-hmm. he's saying Jose Mourinho doesn't like me. But we don't really get that because we're getting sort of translated French. And I think at times I was surprised by the way the translator translated certain things. He didn't really soften much. He went straight for it. But I, I sort of felt like Daniel Levy assumed it was, yeah, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not really feeling it. And I don't think he was actually trying to understand the issue to make it better. It felt like this is the one time we did see him be a little bit more hard-nosed and a little bit more like, all right, here's how it is. Here's how it's going to be. Let's move on. So much so that it ends. I know we're it's still in coronavirus, but it ends with him just getting up and walking away. There's no handshake. There's no elbow bump. There's no sort of conciliatory gesture it felt very much like that is still an open wound and i don't know if it's going to get much better in the immediate future yeah and also i want to know more about player li- liaison officer I had a very short stint in this series roberto Babontin. i mean i have questions man yeah he, 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 he speaks four languages and I, I, he looked like a man with history i want to know more about him dude i am right there with you i would i would watch a a like a sort of behind the scenes featurette on him i would watch a five minute sort of thing where we go away from the team to talk about him his name is roberto Babontin. he speaks four languages but speaks with an english accent yes i yeah, I need I need to know what his deal is and how he came to be and what he does for the team because I, I hope he's just out like drinking wine with the players and discussing b- politics while smoking c- yeah. cigars. That's what I'm assuming it is with that name and him speaking four languages. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And that, that got me thinking. Like, I wonder how many teams have one of him have a have a man who speaks four languages and is basically a fixer who reads Plato yeah. in his spare time. I'm very intrigued by that situation. I am as well. And now that you mention it, like we also saw earlier when Steven Bergwijn signs that they have liaison officers whose their responsibility is helping them blend in and get acclimated and find a place to live. So we know that's a thing, but we haven't seen that with Ndombele. We haven't seen sort of what was done to make him feel like he was accepted, like he was part of the team. I, I do think that Jose Mourinho, I think like it's a similar thing to Dele Ali, except that with Dele Ali, he had been told by Sir Alex Ferguson, like, that is the player I wish I could sign. I want that player. I think there is a lot of respect there. So I think that's why Jose Mourinho comes in with an idea of this guy is very, very good. He just hasn't been challenged. And I think Ndombele is what happens if Mourinho doesn't get the briefing about this guy is incredibly good. And instead, he just sees him as sort of lazy. Worth noting that uh, I believe fans pointed out that in the first six episodes, the only time we see Ndombele, aside from like very quick cuts of him on the field, is when he's eating. He's always eating in every (laughs) single shot, which maybe is the like subliminal idea of he's not really training that well, but he is eating and looking very comfortable. Yeah, there was a shot of him uh, in a game. I thought it was slow motion, but it wasn't. (laughs) So I just thought that interaction was interesting, and it didn't really resolve in a way that I think they kind of probably wanted it to. And so we just end up sort of stop talking about uh, Ndombele and move on to other topics uh, in the final episode. Uh, We do get more of the, the conflict and the the fighting a bit more. Where, where yeah. should we go next? Should we talk about some of the interactions in the team? Should we talk about Sheffield United game for a moment? Well, yeah, the Sheffield United game was interesting. It had the Lucas Moura handball situation and Jose getting angry once again. But that anger sort of, for me, was a little precursor set up to 
what I've yeah. dubbed the awful, terrible idea 11 aside game that Jose Brito decides to set up in training. Yeah. It, and this is something where he's, he's trying to get his uh, soft bellied side, as we say, to, uh, to, 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 to be a little tougher. And the way they've edited it, it looks like this is the first time they've ever done it. It looks like the yeah. first time they've ever done an 11 aside. Full contact, no, no shin guards or anything. And there are big tackles flying in. There's Dyer goes pretty hard on Sun. Uh, and, and Lucas Mora gets shirty with it. was Sergio Rea, wasn't it? He, he got very angry with him. And the Dyer tackle on Sun left quite, a, quite an injury on, on, uh, on Hongmin Sun. And you, you saw the aftermath of it, the bruising on his shin. And what we got also was some classic Jose Mourinho trolling. Because yep. like the, the physios and uh, Salpus, Jeff Scott, are all being very serious about it. Jose comes in and he's like, oh, Sonny, just go on your Instagram and take a picture and starts laughing. And, and then it like, this happened in training? Yeah, this yeah happened he tra- thinks that's hysterically funny. And then Son- it just comes back to Sonny going, I'm so angry. I'm so angry. It's like, Mourinho, you have not read the room in no. one iota in this situation. That was quite amusing. I was, I thought it was, it was really revealing to some extent because that is after Eric Dyer has come in. And I think this is going to be a little bit of a ramble, uh, as is my style. But I think, first off, that training session, I think you see the players who have fully embraced, like, he wants us to be ugly, he wants us to foul, he wants us to be physical. I am going to do what he asks, and I think Eric Dyer is one of those players. Harry mm-hmm. Winks is another one who we see kind of routinely doing those cynical fouls, not just in training, but in games as well. But I think you see the end result of that is, yeah, Eric Dyer comes through, and that is a, that's a red card challenge from what I saw, from where the stud marks were and how immediately present they were. But then you see the unintended consequence of that, which is, Eric Dyer comes in and doesn't really apologize. It's more of a like, all right, you're right, Sonny. Like, oh, you know how it goes. Like, yeah. you'll be fine. And Sun Heung-min is is livid and says, like, what if you broke my shin? And there's sort of Eric Dyer sits there. I'm sure there's more to it. But it doesn't seem resolved. It seems like Eric Dyer is not apologizing. Again, this is where he definitely – we then get the cut to him sort of standing in training, like looking a little bit preening with his mohawk. And it was just like, oh, he is fully the villain now in, the, in this narrative. If we were doing a movie, he's now the one who like got angry and tried to break the star player's leg. Um, and that's when Mourinho steps in. And he, I think he's trying to de-escalate. He's trying to make a joke. And then he like over laughs at his own joke and no one else laughs. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that it is this weird moment of like – like Son is angry. He has just returned from his uh, shoulder surgery or his elbow surgery. Mm-hmm. He is just getting back to full fitness and now here's another collision from his own teammate that isn't really dealt with. You see the like the disharmony there and the frustration and Jose Mourinho, yeah, making a bit of a tone-deaf joke in the middle of it like lands with that much more of a thud. Yeah, and it, it is this narrative that's being built up in this episode, and they're making it sound like this is the first time that he's done this, but it's Jose deliberately trying to cause confrontation. And we had that moment in uh, the previous episode with Delhi and Dyer getting into it and him sort of liking that quite a bit. And we get it again when the Everton game comes around, when yeah. we have the whole Lloris and Son fighting yeah. on the field moment uh, with Son not not tracking back and we have the foresight of the uh, the commentator telling us that he didn't track back in there well, as well um, we we is, have the dubbed over the, yeah, yeah the, the this is another thing where pointing think, very loudly to what has just happened which didn't yeah. actually happen in the broadcast um no. commentary yeah which helped which a lot. I, I will give them I, I should jump in sorry to interrupt ryan just to say that that was another one that i read that basically they can't get the rights to certain things so that's right. why you don't see footage of like i think man united wouldn't let them film so that's why we don't really get any footage of that game i think they couldn't get rights to certain audio clips which is why they 
had to re-record with the commentator, like li- like saying it as though it's a game, but it is so perfect of like, oh, it's spilling over. There's afters in the tunnel now. They're continuing to shove each other. It's just like there's no way that was happening. We had cut to commercial at that point because it was halftime. But, yeah. yes, there's some voiceover for this conflict, the yelling, and then it does seem like this is where we get the, like, Jose Mourinho solves the problem, and the game ends and they win, and Yoris and Son hug each other, and all is right with the world. Yeah, and that's interesting on the on the rights thing about Man United not letting them film. It makes you think what what challenges they had on the road with that kind of thing. I'm sure Burnley mm-hmm. were very accommodating letting them film their hovel uh, away dressing room. Probably offered them some <laughs> gruel and some room temperature water as well, just to be <laughs> super accommodating. But yeah, this this, this um we we get from the Sun Lloris incident out on the field once again some insight we haven't seen before as it continues back into the mm-hmm. dressing room uh, and Lloris screaming, make the run for the team make the yeah. run for the team and jose kind of sitting back letting it unfold a little bit with the, you, you could tell he's absolutely mm-hmm. loving it and then he kind of turns it into this teachable moment yeah where he's saying it happened because you demand more from each other now that's why this happened and it's what he wanted jose wanted that to happen mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and it's it, it's quite curious that, that he's he's uh trying to cause friction and confrontation within his squad to try and get them more on board with what he wants to do well, I think I think what he is like my read on that was that he was saying basically like a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, you're not demanding that level of effort and excellence from your teammates. You yeah. are now. So you've already learned my methods. You're already embracing it and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be challenging and you're going to have fights. But this is how you get better. And I think that is where we're heading at the conclusion of this series is sort of the idea that. No, it didn't go the way we wanted to, but I took over when you were in 14th, and now we've qualified for Europe, and we're going to be stronger. We have all these attacking options. We're going to score a ton of goals. They don't score that many goals in the in the run of play, but whatever. But I think like we are getting that idea that this team has now bought in. Everybody's on board. Hugo Lloris is very much on board and is willing to be that vocal screamer that you maybe sometimes need. So I felt like... At least from a narrative standpoint, I understood why they were doing it. And I do understand sort of what he meant in that team talk. But I still also am a little bit confused why Son wasn't tracking back. That feels like it should have been a bigger issue. But again, maybe that is a thing that they talked about before we got to see it or that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and when Josie's trying to rationalize what happens, like, Larice wants you to track back. And Sonny, you yep. uh, didn't track back. And it's kind of the way he justified the whole situation. Uh, that was curious. But that, mm-hmm. that was very interesting. I'm, I'm aware we're running quite long on this, Tate, and we've got a few oh. more things to cover. Can we talk about the Kane gender reveal for a second? Sure. Mm-hmm. That was great because everybody loves baby gender reveals. They're all, all oh, wonderful man. and everybody wants to attend them. And you, what, not, what's better, even better, is when you do them at your place of work. Um, oh, yes. So the K one. And it doesn't went, feel at all like a corporate sponsored event. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. not at all. Just set up by the, so, uh, the Tottenham uh, social media team for, for some extra content. Um, but this, it was quite cute the way they did it. Um, wonderful that Kane didn't pull a hammy when he, uh, when he hit that <laughs> ball and made it explode. I wonder how many times he did that and did he miss it? I am fascinated time. by that. I would yes. love to know if that was the first take. I'm sure it was. He's very talented, blah, blah, blah. But the best moment was when one of Kane's daughters, mm-hmm. uh, once, um, once it was a boy, wasn't it, the, the reveal? Yeah. And the, the daughter went, do a girl now. And he's like, <laughs> no, no, that's it. There's no more kids. <laughs> he's got three kids, man. Go for it, Harry Kane. All right, why not? Yeah, I, I, it, I felt like I was really hoping for a Diana Ross uh, '94 World Cup moment of just like missing the goal a couple times. He's got all. I think it was all their family and friends streaming in to watch. I'm sure maybe some Tottenham fans in there as well if they won yeah. like a raffle or something. Uh, yeah, I, th- I also I have to admit like I found this part of the series 
this is where I like for the first time did sort of find myself scrolling Twitter and looking at Reddit in moments because it was this, it was the the Skywalk, uh, it was the team barbecue where like. Michel Vorm says goodbye, and it's, like, very clear that, like, yeah, we, we know you've been here for a while, but, like, you're not Jan Vertonghen. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> thanks was, for your remarks. This was one of the Let's most awkward down. moments of the series. So we had uh, – can I just talk about the Skywalk because this relates yeah, to it? The one thing we've seen post-corona or in this in this period of time – Nobody at Tottenham really wearing a mask. I think we see maybe no. a couple of masks on the bench at some point, but none of the, the key the players staff, wearing one that's it. at all. Yeah. Levy and Mourinho, when they do the skywalk and have their awkward banter, we're kind of made to believe that they hang out all the time and they sit next to each other at the barbecue as well. Not mm-hmm. sure how much that is the case. But that's an opportunity where they maybe could have worn masks. They're interacting with staff at the stadium who probably aren't in their bubble. Uh, I thought that was all very curious the way they didn't do that. And Mourinho, oh, let's mm-hmm. take our agents up here and we'll negotiate from up here. Ha, 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 yeah. ha. Let's do some more promotion for this skywalk in this stadium we're trying to pay for. Blah, blah, blah. But then we get to the, the, post, the postseason no-mask champagne barbecue, the annual yep. event that every Tottenham fan, uh, Tottenham player loves to attend, <laughs> which is curious because we see so many bottles of a certain sponsored named champagne quite obviously displayed prominently on the tables. And then the most awkward moment of the season, Michelle Vorm and Jan yep. Fatonga going up and having uh, Daniel Levy do an awkward speech for them. Because... It's so clear that one player is more important to the yep. team than the other. And they both get a watch. I assume that Michelle Vaughan gets a Timex and uh, Jan gets a Rolex. Uh, I didn't check what kind of watch uh, they, they get there. Yeah. But then Jan Vertonghen gets a special painting of himself, or, or it was a photo, a Photoshop of him pulling, yeah. pulling his shirt and, uh, with the Superman shirt underneath, and it's all signed. Michelle Vaughan, no picture for you. No, no anything <laughs> for you. Go and sit down again, please. You, yeah. you, you messed up that Norwich game. That's all you've done this season. Go away. But it was it's also all very weird. It was, and it's also that Jan Vertonghen, who we saw in an earlier episode, was sort of uncertain of his contract situation. Alderweireld ends up signing a long-term deal. He obviously does not, which is why he, he moves at the end of the season, because he can move on a free. So it's also awkward, not just because it's Michel Vorm who had the howler, but it's because it's a player who we're like, you've been a great servant, and we love you, and you're always welcome back. Both of you are always welcome back. We are not renewing you, and you're welcome to leave and go sign somewhere else, and we don't really need you. But we definitely really appreciate what you did. It's, it's a, it is an awkward moment, not dissimilar from like leaving one job for another, and how those sort of goodbye parties are always a little bit weird, because there's yeah. always some unspoken, like, you guys know why I'm leaving. And this is maybe not the way I wanted this to go down, but here we are as everybody sort of smiles and applauds semi-enthusiastically but is mostly like all right i'm gonna eat my my burger and then can i get out of here is that allowed do i have to drink the sponsored champagne first okay cool i'll do that that's punishment for the team isn't it that's punishment having to attend that kind of thing but like if you're gonna have two players like that leave give them separate speeches don't make them come up at the same time when their contributions are not equal goodness me yeah, and you could almost hear Michelle Vorms just saying like, I, "I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't deserve to be talking right now. Uh, I'll give the, I'll, I'll give, I yield my time to Jan. That's fine. That's fine. Um, but we do then kind of reach the end of the series. We do, of course, uh, in them winning their final couple games, we get DeAndre Yedlin getting megged for a goal because you've got to get your, your Americans looking bad in there as well. Um, aside from that, Ryan, anything else you wanted to touch on before we call this review finished? Uh, the slightly melancholic moment at the, the game at to- uh, Crystal Palace, the last game of the season. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, sh- hugging and celebrating the Europa League spot based on a draw at Selhurst Park. Yeah, and Wolves losing. <laughs> yeah. oh, that didn't yeah. feel like the uh, crescendo that Amazon were hoping for, does it? 
It really doesn't. It was also seeing Mourinho like frantically checking his watch and being like, oh, God, they're going to score. They're going to score. They're going to score. It wasn't, again, the quite – I think it didn't come off the way they intended because I think they meant for that to be like, here's the drama. Is it going to happen? Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And that works a lot better when you're up 1-0 and it's like, are they going to see this game out? But Tottenham desperately holding on for a one-to-one draw to get sixth place against Crystal Palace – it didn't have that level of like, oh, are they going to do it? This is drama. Are they going to hold on to get the result against Chelsea or Liverpool or something like that? It was more of a like, oh, they've fallen a little bit. This is a little bit of a uh, a downturn and that they end up celebrating that 1-1 draw as dramatically as they do. Again, I don't think it quite had the intended consequence. Yeah. But uh, overall, uh, I've really enjoyed this series. I think there's a lot to learn about Tottenham in here. It gets my worst rating ever, eight thumbs up. Fifth Simpsons reference. (laughs) There you go. It's always the goal. Five in one show. I, I went into this like being uncertain about Tottenham this year. I think halfway through... I had fully bought into it, and I think I had Tottenham finishing fourth in the league. I'm not sure I'm going to change that. I still think that what we didn't see was a lot. And again, maybe it was edited out. Maybe it's just the way they structured it. But I don't think we saw a lot of players being angry at Jose. We didn't see when he is confronting people, when he is calling them out. We never saw that one player be like, well, what are you doing? Like, we never saw anything go back at him. So it does seem like the squad like him enough or have bought in enough that they're going to stick with it. Mm. So I think they bring in Bale, they bring in Requilon, uh, they've brought in other players that we've already talked about previously. I think they're going to be good. It might take a little bit of time, but I think we'll continue to see Tottenham in and around those Champions League spots this season. And I don't know if we're going to get another season. Jose Mourinho obviously came into it with them already filming, so I don't know if that will be different this time around now that he is firmly ensconced. Uh, I hope we do get another one because I thought it was was very good, even if there are things I, I would have liked to see more of or less of. I thought overall a great docuseries. Very much uh, agree with all your sentiments there, Taylor. And I think I agree that Tottenham, uh, their fourth or fifth place, I could see them hitting that once again. Uh, and I think they're going to go great guns until this season shuts down again in November. (sighs) On that note, (laughs) I am losing my voice, so I will just say, Ryan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk all or nothing with me all the time. I'm going to conclude that one as awkwardly as I can, and I look forward to doing Weekend Review with you in uh, a scant three days. Wales, golf, teaching Deli Ali to cook something other than baked beans in the microwave in that (laughs) order. (laughs) 